You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fong. Still the same Welcome to episode 180.1 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. If you've been listening a while, you know that point one means one of us is not here. And in this case, it's David Grubbs, who is not, in fact, on paternity leave. He just didn't get the reading done in time, so he's not here to talk. Uh, so with that in mind, we're going to put off the uh, All My Sons episode we had planned for this week, and we're going to do that next week instead. So if you haven't read All My Sons yet, now you have an extra week to do so. Or probably, yeah, about a, I guess it's a week. You would have to read it. Uh, save me from this, Nathan. <laughs> Just read the play, all right? Yeah, there we go. So Nathan Gilmore is here. He's an assistant <laughs> professor, associate professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. Nathan? Uh, oh, I, I am still an associate professor. They haven't taken that promotion away and uh, just sitting here ready to teach a good long day of classes after we get done recording. Those listeners who aren't fans of us on Facebook who listened to the last episode may be interested to know that uh, the third grublet has been born and, <laughs> and his name is Cadman Gregory. Cadman Gregory Grubbs. Yes, indeed. It's a serious name for what I'm sure will be a very serious young man. <laughs> who will be very serious about all the people who pronounce his name Cademan for the, oh, re- I, I, for the rest yeah, of I... his uh, life. <laughs> but you, you got to respect uh, you got to respect the name of special characters. Yeah, I, I, I didn't even think about that. I mean, I, I imagine that uh, you know. Various government and educational institution databases will probably just spell it A-E rather than inserting the ash. Is that what it's called, ash? That's how I was taught. I I didn't even know what the name was, so. (laughs) Well, as I said, we've got some listener feedback uh, to talk about. I'll go ahead and read the first first email here. It's from Matthew Limber. He says, hey, Doctor's Humanist. I was listening to the episode on the lost tools of learning, and Dr. Gilmore made a comment about the virtues of mathematical education, which received a hearty agreement from Dr. Farmer. I would love to hear a full episode by you English professors about mathematics in general, with a segment on its values for humanists. Somebody called our bluff, Nathan. <laughs> I, I actually wouldn't mind doing that episode. Uh, you know, of course, Matthew Limber won't be surprised to find that probably... We would talk about the history of mathematics rather than doing mathematics in a podcast format. I, I don't know that I've ever actually heard anyone do math on a podcast, but that, that might be a reflection of the kinds of podcasts I listen to. How far did you get in your math education? Because I did not make it past Algebra 2. Oh, wow. Okay, so I, I made it uh, up to Calculus, and I also took Statistics uh, back when I was seeking high school certification. Gotcha. My dad is an engineer, I think I've mentioned on this podcast before. So, like, I grew up in a math 
adjacent household. And uh, <laughs> the first year of this podcast, actually, when I was unemployed, I worked for my dad, um, which I guess means I wasn't unemployed, but it sure felt like it. And I remember I, I, I had to, to balance all this stuff on an Excel spreadsheet, and it took forever, and it was self-referential. And uh, three weeks later, when I finished it, my dad said that I had spontaneously learned calculus. Oh, okay. <laughs> but I certainly couldn't tell you anything about it. It's just that apparently that spreadsheet required calculus to do. And I, uh, you know, by 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 making the spreadsheet work, I had used calculus. Mm-hmm. Learned is probably not the right word. So anyway. Right, I, right. I, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I would probably take the helm on that episode. And, and uh, you know, Matthew, you can probably look forward to it relatively soon. Uh, but it'll probably be something akin to a brief history of it. And then, you know, some philosophical reflections on it rather than actually working out, you know, uh, derivatives and so on and so forth. Did he expect us to act? I don't think he expected us to work out derivatives. I think he wanted to talk about he wanted us to talk about how math is valuable to other forms of thinking. I gotcha. I gotcha. I, I just, you know, in case we've got any, you know, book of nature listeners or book of nature hosts that want to hear us fumble with mathematics. I'm, I'm just saying you'll get no such satisfaction. We should right, probably get, we should probably get peddler on that episode, right? Yeah, that's not a bad idea. Cause it, it would be nice to have somebody who is, who kind of did math for a living. Yeah. Does physics, but I think f- physicists think of what they do as math. I, I think there's some math involved. I think mathematicians don't think what physicists do is math, but, uh, that's probably outside the scope of this show. Right, right. The but, uh, the Christian humanist philosophy of close enough would kick in, I think. Uh, by the way, nobody listening to this needs to address us by our titles when they write in. Except for me. <laughs> they have to address you or you have to address us by our titles. Oh, man. Because I think it's about time you started showing uh, the rest of us some respect. <laughs> I've, I've been trapped by my own vague antecedent. <laughs> Why don't you go ahead and read the next uh, email there, Nathan? I shall do so. This one is from Jason Evans. He says, Hey guys, I just started listening to the Christian Humanist podcast and got to the fifth episode about neo-Calvinism and emergent Christianity and wondered if you did or would consider a revisit episode. I think it'd be great to hear you talk about where you've seen the two streams go, maybe more truthfully, how they've been stepping stones to maybe a more postmodern church from the emergent side. And if you want to take the fallout of the neo-Calvinist in the wake of multiple abuse scandals, uh, not that we want to heap onto that. Anyway, I've only heard the first five episodes so far, and hope you get to more talking about or talking more. Pardon me about literature. Oh, Thanks, heavens. Jason. As as we always say, please don't listen to the first ten episodes of this show. <laughs> <laughs> if those got lost in the internet somewhere, I don't think uh, I don't think anybody would miss them. No, and, and I'll admit, I you know, I haven't given a thought to that uh, neo-Calvinism and emergent episode for a long time. It haunts my and, dreams because I know that I said uh, Brian McLaren annoys me because he's too cool. <laughs> oh, that's right, because uh, Khaled Keith Perry actually did a uh, video blog response to that one, didn't he? I don't remember. Uh, he did, he did. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, that, there's something else I haven't thought about for a long time. Uh, but simply because they have largely dropped off my radar, uh, you know, I hadn't really planned to do a revisit episode. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I'm still, uh, 
aware of, you know, folks like uh, Kevin DeYoung and, and people like that. But, I mean, they don't dominate my internet space the way that they did six years ago. How about you, Michael? Yeah, I mean, I, I know the scandals he's talking about. And actually, Nathan and I were just talking before we started recording about Mark Driscoll's new church. Um, mm-hmm. in in phoenix but yeah it's not really a scene i paid that much attention to i mean this is a topic that comes up from time to time especially the emergent postmodern side on christian humanist profiles when we interview people from those persuasions i i think mm-hmm. we've had new calvinists on that program haven't we oh goodness Maybe not. And see, and see, now that you put me on the spot, I can't think of any. Because I mean, uh, the, the, the person who would do those interviews would probably be, be Grubbs, and I'm I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think if he's if he's done any. He tends to pick, um, non-controversial. Is that fair to say? I'm not putting Grubbs down. It's not like I do a lot of controversial interviews. No, no. I mean, I'm I'm the one who wades into fights that I shouldn't be in. Right, and and you don't do that with the with the neo-Calvinist side, despite well, I the fact yet. Despite the fact that you probably agree less with them than you do with the emergent side, don't you? Oh, I mean, it depends on what day you catch me. So, yeah, I don't know that I don't know that we're going to do that. You know, I do listen to uh, Michael Horton's White Horse Inn. Does he count as neo-Calvinist? I think he's just Calvinist. Yeah, I mean, that's how I think of him, but he might disagree. I don't know. Yeah. That's a good program, by the way, anybody who doesn't listen to it. Yeah, but, I, you know, I, I, I've... I think I actually advanced this theory for the first time on that episode that the emergent church kind of redirected its energies about the time Barack Obama got the DNC nomination. And I think that that has definitely played out over the last six years since we did that episode. I don't know if you remember this, Nathan, but uh, James K. Smith, who I refuse to call Jamie, Uh um, (laughs) left a comment on our website about that episode. Oh yeah, man! You're just bringing memories back, Michael. I, I I can only assume that he had a uh, he had a Google alert out for his name. I mean, I don't want to accuse anybody of anything here, but it, <laughs> it came the day after we posted it, and that was our fifth episode. So certainly nobody in the entire world had ever heard of us. Uh, yeah, but, uh, yeah, but I remember what he said. He said that to him, the emergent church just looks like old-fashioned liberalism. It, it, he, I think he he well, dropped Paul Tillich's name. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and, you know, speaking of folks who have Google alerts out for their name, I do also remember responding to a uh, Tony Jones blog post and Tony Jones coming over to comment. Nice. (laughs) Speaking of emergent types. Anyway, uh, I'm sorry, Jason. I don't I don't know that you're going to get that. I mean, maybe maybe we could cover something, a smaller area within those two things. I mean, that's another thing that we don't do so much anymore is these huge topics. Cause we exhausted them. We ran right, out of huge right. topics. Well, and, I mean, once we figured out that our show might last more than a year and a half, we started uh, pacing ourselves. We're older than most, uh, most Christian podcasts. If you think about it, we're older than most podcasts. If you think about it. Yeah, and we have the, the smallest number of listeners of any podcast in the world <laughs> <laughs> and dropping daily. Oh goodness. All right. Well, our next email is from uh, Tim Webb. He says, hey, guys, I love the show and listen to almost every one. 
don't know why I think that almost is so funny. I regularly don't listen to episodes of podcasts I like, but I just assume he doesn't listen to the ones I host. (laughs) I I, I don't always listen to podcasts, but when I do... (laughs) In the recent Tolkien show, so I guess he does listen to one. The ones that I host, because I hosted that one. Gilmore said, Tolkien is interested in being a medieval and classical thinker in a post-Christian moment for the sake of Christian thinking. And noted that this is close to the heart of the project of the Christian Humanist Podcast. This description really caught my attention and has really made me think. My question is, as a devoted listener who's interested in the things you all talk about, how would you encourage slash recommend that a layman like myself become more of a medieval and classical thinker? Maybe another way to ask the question is, what readings and activities, that is, not just reading, etc., would you recommend towards this end? Perhaps a Christian Humanist 101, if you will. If you want to do this topic as a whole podcast, consider this a suggestion. I'm sure I wouldn't be the only one interested in your thoughts on such a topic. You may recall that I'm the guy who jokingly asked in a previous feedback why y'all don't ever talk about sex, because presumably (laughs) some of us do it well, with reference to your show's tagline. But this is a serious question. What's more serious than than sex? Thanks a bunch. I really appreciate your podcast, Texas Tim. Oh, man. So... I, I do, the, the, I do the, remember that previous email. He was he was so he was so amused at our uh, hemming and hauling. Although I don't, I don't know if I was on that one uh, on our hemming and hauling that he wanted to make the joke again to hear us do it mm-hmm. again. So well, to 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 address the uh, the other question to him and also more. Uh, honestly, this is one of those things uh, where I'm going to point you to some fellow podcasters. Uh, namely the partially examined life. The reason I point you that direction is that they have the resources and the staff to maintain a far more active uh, listener educational program. Uh, And one of the things they do is called Not School, where you can get into discussion groups about old texts. And if you propose any text, whether it be Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy or whatever else, uh, you can get like-minded listeners on board with you to actually talk through those things. Uh, it's something that we tried to do very early in the, the Christian humanist narrative and discovered that as full-time professors, we just didn't have the time or the resources to run an interactive part of the site. Uh, and, and Michael, who, who is it who's always getting on us to expand the empire? I, I know that folks would like us to do that, but I, I mean, I'm, I'm already not sleeping enough, man. <laughs> but, you know, I will say this. If there's a listener out there who wants to run a not school esque site for us, uh, we can't call it that though. Yeah, no, of course not. <laughs> we can call it Christian Humanist One Hundred and One. I don't know. We can call it something. But if there's somebody out there who wants to do that work and put it together, you would certainly have our blessing. Mm-hmm. We could call it the uh, Christian Humanist Agora, or just CHU. Ooh. <laughs> well, I was thinking we call it the uh, Christian Humanist Agora. And then if you participate in three of the discussions, we give you the cha-cha-cha title. Oh, good lord. <laughs> I was thinking we could call it the Christian Humanist Agrabah, and then whoever runs it could be the genie. <laughs> that's nice, that's nice. Folks, we didn't know we were doing this episode until about five minutes before we started. <laughs> <laughs> but, in all seriousness, I think Michael's idea is great, uh, you know, uh uh, we've told the story more than once, and I'm going to tell it n plus one today. 
uh, when Kristen Philippic approached us to help out with the network, uh, she just catapulted us into a level of influence and awesomeness that I, I didn't imagine before she came on board. I, I don't uh, think I'm exaggerating when I say that Christian humanist profiles could not exist without Kristen. No, that's absolutely true. If, if you want to come on board and be our interactive site runner, the way that she is our press liaison, the way that Brit Stack is our audio editor for profiles, the way that so many people have helped out, uh, please contact us. Cause I mean, I w I would be thrilled to have a site like that. I just don't have the energy in my poor aging body to run it. Agreed. <laughs> that I don't have energy in my poor aging body. I agree with everything you said. <laughs> <laughs> Inclu good, including you're being old. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, Christian humanist bingo players drop that chip. All right. Uh, who's next, Michael? Is it Abigail? It is Abigail. And Abigail, I'm going to mispronounce your name here. Uh, Abigail Rene Favale. I'm, I'm just pronouncing the uh, vowels as if they were Italian or Spanish. At any rate, she says this. Hello, dear podcasters and fellow Christian academics. I am a brand new listener. In fact, I've only listened to one episode, the recent one on Catholic higher education. I'm a cradle evangelical and recent Catholic convert who teaches at an evangelical CCCU school. George Fox. Uh, I was, so I was excited to stumble upon your podcast via the Partially Examined Life. But as I listened to your episode on Catholic higher ed, I began to feel frustrated that there wasn't a Catholic voice to offer clarifications, especially during discussion of the Eucharist. So here I am writing an email to express my thoughts. I hope that's okay. First, a minor quibble. Catholic institutions do not have the authority to suddenly change church teaching. <laughs> regarding the Eucharist, so it isn't charitable to fault a specific university for refusing the host to non-Catholics. If you have a beef, it's with the church, not Fordham. So let's talk about the church herself. Hang on a second. I, I, think, I think we have to apologize for Nathan, who comes from a tradition without any sort of genuine governing body. So it's beyond your ability to imagine that uh, that anybody has to answer to a higher power than their conscience. <laughs> uh, I was also reiterating what I had read in other people's writings, not making stuff up on the spot, I do want to note. <laughs> I, uh, I was not part of this episode, and if I had been, uh, rest assured, I would have jumped down your throat for that one. <laughs> <laughs> She continues, the larger frustration I had listening to the discussion was what seemed to be a lack of clarity regarding why non-Catholics are not invited to receive during communion. The terms of the criticism seem to revolve largely around the idea of hospitality. Uh, in other words, it's a violation of Christian hospitality not to have an open table. The idea of hospitality in relation to the Eucharist is interesting in this articulation of the Protestant perspective. The focus seemed to be on the self. Why am I being refused this? why this is making me feel excluded, and so on. From the Catholic perspective, the hospitality at work in the Mass is our hospitality towards Christ as bodily present in the elements, receiving him actually, and not just symbolically, into our very person. Indeed, we pray this prayer right before communion. Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof, but only say the word and my soul shall be healed. And even we Catholics have to prepare ourselves to be able to receive. We aren't simply entitled to the host by virtue of being Catholic. And we have to do some some housework, so to speak, to prepare to welcome Christ. We can and should be refused under certain circumstances. If I have any grave sin on my conscience, 
I must first be reconciled to Christ through the sacrament of reconciliation, confession. To borrow from Ratzinger, the communion table is the banquet of the reconciled. Christ had many meals with all kinds of people, but the Last Supper, the institution of the Eucharist, was a different kind of meal. All this to say, we take the Eucharist very seriously because it is Christ himself. This is not simply a symbol meant to gather the believers or memorialize a long-ago event. In churches of my upbringing, communion consisted of cubes of Wonder Bread and thimbles of grape juice. The leftovers washed down the sink and thrown in the trash afterwards. The numerous guidelines surrounding the Eucharist protect it from being reduced to this. They protect and affirm the profound holiness of what is occurring. Let me uh, let me pause here and tell a story from my uh, undergraduate days. Um, we had a we had a Catholic student in my school who. Um, when communion was served in chapel, which it, it wasn't Wonder Bread, but other, other than that, what she's describing is, is how it was served, you know, leftovers were thrown out. The, uh, the Catholic student would run into the, uh, the kitchen after the service and eat the rest of it so the body and blood of Christ would not go to waste. Hmm. All right, continuing with the email. I'm looking here. Okay, yeah, I think this is the last long paragraph. During my year of RCIA, as I was preparing to enter the church... I went to Mass every week, sometimes more than once a week, and I was not able to receive. I would go up for a blessing and then watch as others welcome Christ into their bodies. This awakened in me a deep reverence for the Eucharist and also a wild hunger for it. This exclusion was purposeful, formational, and I am grateful for it. Of course, the first time I ever attended a Mass as a teenager with my Catholic boyfriend, I was totally offended and put off by the exclusion. I had an attitude of entitlement and suspicion toward this practice which did seem to contradict the ethos of my little Bible church. But now, from the Catholic perspective, with an understanding of what really happens during Mass and what communion means, the contradiction disappears, because I understand the why behind the rules. To hear the anecdote about Hauerwas making the priest refusing refuse him, pardon me, and then lamenting later about feeling excluded, this seems like such an alien attitude to me now, although, of course, I used to feel similarly. Now I see it as a glaringly revealing a misunderstanding of what the Eucharist is. Try just sitting with the idea that we believe the elements actually are Christ's body and blood. What the priest puts on my tongue is Christ. Just gnaw on that for a while. If you join the church, you can literally gnaw on it. Ha! Huh? Understanding <laughs> the how deep the host it must be chewed. Understanding how deeply we believe this should, I think, help illuminate why we hold such deep reverence for it and why we uphold St. Paul's instruction in 1 Corinthians 11 that the gathered people must be one without factions or divisions, and that each individual must make him herself worthy and discern the body before partaking. What is genuinely inhospitable is allowing those who have not done these things to, in ignorance, drink judgment upon themselves. There is a great little book by Pope Benedict on the Eucharist that explains what I'm trying to articulate here in more depth. It's a concise and beautiful book, and I'd recommend it to anyone who would like to understand the Eucharist from the Catholic viewpoint. Thanks for letting me ramble, and I think getting more Catholic voices on your podcast would be great. Peace, Abigail. Preach it. <laughs> Go ahead, expand on that. I, I I agree wholeheartedly with what she said. I mean, not I I don't believe that that the the host becomes the body and blood of Christ, and because I don't believe that, I would never take. Uh, communion at a Catholic service, and I would never like be upset that I wasn't taking it. And and likewise, I wouldn't want. I, I I'm Presbyterian. Presbyterians believe the. It, there, there's no even consubstantiation, but the Holy Spirit is 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 
present to a greater degree during the the communion service than it is he she it is during the uh the rest of the time right i i would expect a catholic not to take communion during a presbyterian service i'm not even really sure lutherans should be taking communion at presbyterian services and vice versa i think that what you what you believe happens during that uh during that moment is important and and crossing those lines is something uh something that does damage to the community it, it, okay, it well, i don't well, think I, it I, I don't think it can be communion if you're not believing the same things about this Okay, then in that case, would you call Catholicism and Protestantism different religions then? In some ways, yes. Okay, so when my freshmen say there are Christians and there are Catholics, they're basically right? No, they're both Christians, but they're different religions within Christianity. You know, I, we, we've talked about what makes you a Christian, and I don't think it's your belief on the, the Eucharist. It's, uh, you know, the Apostles' Creed is what I would point to. Well, mm-hmm. that's not part of the Apostles' Creed. It's a big, important doctrine, but it's not its not a salvation doctrine. Okay. And, and again, you know, I don't think we're going to solve this in a listener feedback episode, but I do want to point out that this does not solve the tension, right? Uh, if you're going to say that all those who are gathered in Christ's name are Christians, and then some of the people are refused a seat at the table— you need to confront that reality and say either, you know, if you want to remove the contradiction, you know, as, as our listener said, then you need to be ready to say this table is only for Christians. You can't come here. No, you don't. You need to say this table is only for Catholics and you're, you're welcome in the rest of the service. And you can even come up as she says and get the blessing. I, I, but, but you wouldn't, I, I, this is, I think, a problem with denominations. You, you are, you are essentially non-denominational, right? You've gotten mad at me in the past for referring to the Stone Campbell tradition as a denomination. I don't think I've gotten mad. I think I've corrected the terminology. Right, but I, I think that denominations are good things. That those divisions inside the church, as long as they don't become salvation uh, distinctions, I, I think are are good things. And and I, I don't, I don't, I really don't understand why you would want to take the Eucharist at a Catholic church if you don't believe the same thing they do about it. Like, that that's foreign to me. I, I'm with Well, her. that's fine, but what I want is some honesty at that point. I want them to say, because you are not a Christian the way that we are, you can't have a seat at this table. And what what does the priest tell Hauerwas when he makes his, I think, very rude move? Uh, I mean, he didn't write that part of the story. Right. I, I just wonder. I mean, I... I when 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 uh when you talked about that, I, I remember this very clearly. I was cooking dinner, listening to that episode, and I I think I said out loud, "Oh, for crying out loud!" Uh huh. Like I, the the attitude that that Hauerwas expresses in that anecdote is just that's so foreign to me. Okay, and and again, I and you know just just to set the record straight, I have never gone up to receive the host at a mass. Uh, I have never, you know, done so at a, a an Orthodox liturgy either. Uh-huh. Uh, but, I mean, I do think that the point he raises is one that is worth thinking about. And I think that, you know, to pretend that it's simply a matter of violated, I don't know, nicety, uh, I mean, ignores the real tension that is there and the fact that the divided church is not something simply to be accepted, but it is a tragedy to be mourned 
even if we decide to live with it in this way rather than that way. Well, that's fair enough. By the way, hospitality goes both ways. I, I, I think what he did is fairly inhospitable itself. Okay, say more. I mean, hospitality is, is the way you behave as a host and as a guest. Uh, and And just barging in. I mean, it's like going into somebody's bedroom when you're visiting their house. I, I, that, that, that is not something he's part of. He's not a member. Of, I mean, he's not a member of that church. And yet they hired him to teach theology to their students. Well, I, I, and I, I can't, I can't speak to that. I, I, I don't really know how Fordham runs that way, but my guess is. Well, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm talking about Notre Dame. Notre Dame. I, I suspect there's some sort of distinction between the, the church services that go on at that school and the, the hiring practices. Well, yeah. And, and again, you know, what I'm interested in is actually confront, confronting the question. Why is it that we accept that as unproblematic instead of problematizing it and really looking at the contours of that contradiction? Okay, I'm fine with that. What I don't understand is making it an issue of hospitality. Okay, and, and I, I'm sure you've already said it, but I mean, tell me again why that particular term is what hangs you up. Hospitality assumes you're not part of the group. Right, you can't be hospitable to somebody in your own family, somebody who lives in your house. They're... Okay, okay, okay. In that case, that's fair enough. Yeah. So, I mean, in that case, yeah, I mean, to say you are not part of the Christian family, but you're welcome to come in and watch us you, be Christian. You are not part of the Catholic family. I, I, I don't know why. I don't know why you keep making. What's Catholic that... mean? It means universal, but you know that's not what okay. it. You you know that's not what it means in the sense of Catholic Church. Then let's confront that reality. I think they do confront it. I think I think dis, dis uh, inviting Protestants from that table is confronting it. All right, then in that case, let's not pretend that something else is going on. Who's pretending something else is going on? Oh, you you know you're just offended because you don't understand. No, I understand perfectly. <laughs> I, I really I really have no idea where you're coming from on this one, Nathan. I, I suppose, and, and let, let me, you know, try to come at it from another angle here. I suppose what, what uh, I don't even want to say irritates me about this, but I mean, what I wish people would say out loud is the sort of things that we've eventually gotten to here, that, you know, when you say this table is only for those who are disciples of Jesus Christ, and you can't come to this table, that there's a logical conclusion that follows those two propositions. Is, is that what they say at, at, the, at the Eucharist, that this is only for disciples of Jesus Christ? Well, isn't that what the email just said, that you have to be prepared, you have to take it worthily? It's not for everyone, like the meals he ate with sinners, but it's only for the disciples of Jesus Christ? I'm looking at this email again. Okay. Sh show me where it says that. Oh, let me see here. And I've already moved on to the next email. I thought I thought we were done with this one. Uh, <laughs> let's see here. 
From the Catholic perspective, the hospitality at work in the Mass is our hospitality toward Christ as bodily present in the elements, receiving him actually and not just symbolically into our very person. Indeed, we pray this prayer right before communion. Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof, but only say the word and my soul shall be healed. And even we Catholics have to prepare ourselves to be able to receive. We aren't simply entitled to the host by being virtue by virtue of being Catholic. And we have to do some housework, so to speak, to prepare to welcome Christ. We can and should be refused under certain circumstances circumstances i i don't i don't see wh- where what you're what you're saying exists in this email okay let me see here all right then what are the certain circumstances here if i have any grave sin on my conscience i must first be reconciled so the, to christ so what uh, is the gra- no 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 but okay. that is a that is a second layer of of not being able to take it Mm-hmm. The violation of hospitality has to do with not believing that Christ is bodily present in the elements. Then, even if you believe that, there are certain things that should make you loathe to take it. I, I think that's what she's saying. I, you know, I'm not Catholic. I don't. I don't have. I don't have a huge background in Catholic theology. But I, I don't see where she's saying that Protestants aren't Christians. Well, I mean, again, here's here's where. Uh, and again, I'm going to go back to Jamie Smith here, and I do call him Jamie Smith. Uh, you know, the actual embodied practice of the church is to gather certain people around the table, is it not? Yes. Which people are those? It depends on which group of Christians you're talking about. I mean, there are Baptist churches that only allow Baptists to take communion. My church happens to welcome all Christians, but... I, I think if I were a Lutheran... Or okay, a so I mean, is that essential or is that accidental then? Essential or accidental to what? To the practice of gathering around the table. I, I assume it's it, that is essential, but the the action of gathering around the table, as far as I can see it, is not what makes you a Christian or not. It's what makes you a member of that particular group. Oh, and see, I, yeah, and I mean, I, I think there is our difference of understanding. And and again, the fact that you keep returning to the Apostles' Creed, I think, is telling because your the way that you're articulating it, you know, this is largely a matter of dogmatic assent rather than of embodied practices. And I think that's where theologically I, I want to confront that proposition and say, I'm not sure that that's what I see going on in the history of the Church or in the New Testament. Then why stop at the Eucharist? Why not look at all the other things that different churches do differently and say, well, that means that they don't think churches that do it the other way are Christian? Example. Uh, uh, worship music, for example. Okay. Why not, why, why not do that? That is an embodied practice. Okay. And if a church said, if you're not a member of our church, you're not allowed to raise your hands while we sing, I'd have a problem with that. What about speaking in tongues? Is anyone barred from that in any Pentecostal service you've been in? I've never been in a Pentecostal service. Oh, I've been in a few because I work at a Pentecostal college, and I mean, you are welcome to do so. Uh, let me think of another one. I mean, th- these are <laughs> the, these are practical differences. I agree. I, I'm not saying there's no difference between Catholics and Protestants. I'm just saying mm-hmm. that difference takes place on some level other than christianity okay and, and i'm not sure I, I would draw that line that cleanly so so do you not think catholics are christians then oh i do 
And, and, you know, when one comes into Bogart Christian Church, they are welcome to become part of our Eucharistic service. They are Christians, so therefore the table is Christ's table and they're welcome at it. Oh man, but I, I would hope if they if they didn't believe the same thing that you guys do metaphysically about what happens during that that action that they wouldn't. And why is that? Because because frankly, what Catholics believe about the Eucharist is incredibly important to them. I mean, you, right. you don't you don't think the distinction between seeing the Eucharist as literally the body and blood of Christ versus a, a symbol you don't think that's an important distinction? Oh, I think it is an important distinction. I think it's important enough that we should have that dispute as we are partaking together. But you're assuming already that it's it's not important enough to keep us from partaking together. No, I'm in, I'm assuming that it is so important that if we bar people from it because of that difference, we are missing what is the core point of gathering around the table. But, but uh, yeah, you're assuming what the core point of gathering around the table is. Remember what she says here. Uh, From the Catholic perspective, the hospitality at work in the Mass is our hospitality toward Christ as bodily present in the elements. the, The hospitality issue is not between people. And again, I wouldn't draw that line that neatly. I, 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 again, I mean, I, I think the big theological difference here, and I'm sure I've alienated all of our Catholic listeners at this point, but... That's okay, I, I still love them. <laughs> I, I do too, and like I said, I mean, in my mind, I mean, this is a theological dispute worth having. And, you know, you can have this dispute while you bar certain people from partaking, or you can have this dispute while you are welcoming people to partake and i tend to prefer the latter but barring them i mean I, when's the last time you went to a mass you can you can participate in the in the action you can go down front and get the blessing so it's not like you're you're on the outskirts you're 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 part of that service you're just not catholic so i'm not part of the universal church oh for crying out loud you were not <laughs> you were not roman catholic if you prefer you're not a popist okay. to use the terrible papist <laughs> to use the terrible conservative Presbyterian language. Oh goodness, yeah, I, I prefer not to use that language. All right, can can we uh, assume we're not going to solve this here and go to the next email? I will say one other thing: we do need more Catholics in, in the network. Um, there there used to be a panelist on the feminist podcast who was Catholic, but she dropped out because she was too busy. So. Uh, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe we should do an episode on the Eucharist and invite a Catholic person to, to actually talk about it so that I'm not attempting to speak for a group that I'm not a member of. Right, right. And and to be fair, I'm, you know, I, a person who's never gone to receive, I'm trying to speak for Stan Hauerwas, who I am not. <laughs> Would you go to receive the way he does, just just out of curiosity? No. Well, that's good. I mean, I, I don't have anything against Hauerwas, uh, you know, particularly. But that, oh, that, I do. But <laughs> that that just seems that just seems like such a such a rude thing to do. Well, and I, I guess I mean, and and now I'm not even going to say that because I just said we need to go to the next email. So let's go to the next email. <laughs> Congratulations, Abigail! You've uh, you've provoked a fight between me and Gilmore. Always fun. <laughs> indeed, indeed. 
All right. Um, our next email is from Sarah Davis. She says, she's been listening to our podcast for the past three years and have greatly enjoyed my time. Listening to your Karamazov pod- uh, episode encouraged me to read it this past summer. I loved it. It may never completely supplant Lord of the Rings as my favorite book, but I can honestly say that no other novel has encouraged such introspection and inward thought to my faith. I was amazed at how modern the novel feels despite its age. Do y'all it's not have... that old. <laughs> Do y'all have suggestions for what to read now? As a librarian, I tend to like lots of research about a novel before I start it. To me, the plot of the novel was minimal, as the first third of the novel is Alyosha going to various places and talking to people. However, I love the call to introspection, pity, and the richly flawed characters. There are some novels which profoundly change you, and I feel that way, having read Karamazov. I've never read any other Russian literature besides a Gogol, Gogol, I don't know how you pronounce it, short story. I I don't either. (laughs) My primary reading interests have primarily been fantasy and romance mixed in with a smattering of Lewis apologetics. I would appreciate future reading suggestions. I also wanted to thank you all for doing the episode. Everyone has a long list of books they should read, but never get around to it. I never would have moved Karamazov to the top of the list if I hadn't listened to y'all's episode, which piqued my interest. Thank you for all the work and effort y'all put into the podcast. It is greatly appreciated. I think I've said y'all more uh, reading this email than I have in the past 25 years. Not really a word I use, despite being from Georgia. I uh, actually wrote Sarah back. We got this email on January 7th, and I actually wrote her back and suggested Silence, which she could read, I hoped, in time for the uh, the episode we did on that a few weeks ago. I'm not That's sure. That's a good suggestion, yeah. I'm not sure if she if she did that before the episode or not, but um, that, that, that really it, – it probably would have been my next suggestion anyway. I, I think those mm-hmm. those novels have a great deal in common, but uh, what, what would you say, Nathan? Um, I, I, she got me thinking of the direction of uh, Russian literature in, in particular, and for a very, very different experience. Uh, and I always get the sequence of consonants wrong on this, but uh, is it Bulgakov or Bulgakov? I think it's Bulgakov. Bulgakov. Okay, so I got the consonants and the vowels wrong. How typical. Um, but the uh, Master and Margarita is not at all like the Brothers Karamazov, but as far as Russian novels go, I think of it as the weird cousin to Dostoevsky. Uh, it is, and and here's where my, my, my literary critical background leaves me without a vocabulary because I don't do much with novels, but I, I read it, Michael, as sort of a, a surrealistic novel. Is that a fair designation? Um, I've actually, I've read uh, The Heart of a Dog, but I've never read Master and Margarita. Okay, so Heart of the Dog is definitely surrealistic. Okay, good, good, good. So I mean, uh, it involves things like uh, the devil actually coming to uh, communist Russia and becoming terribly frustrated because he can't find anyone who's got enough vestigial Christianity left to be afraid of him. Uh, so I mean, that's that's kind of one of the running gags in the piece. But beyond that, I mean, it's it's a really nice meditation on what happens when art and faith and things like that get drummed out of a culture by an oppressive state. Uh, but it's not nearly as grave and serious as something like 1984. Yeah. And I, yeah, as I said, I've not, um, I've not read that one. Uh, okay. Uh, you know, um, another, another kind of Russian classic is Solzhenitsyn's one day in the life of I, Ivan Denisovich, I think it's pronounced, mm-hmm. um, which is a, a gulag novel. Uh, really, really good. Not nearly as long, not nearly as difficult as Brothers Karamazov, but mm-hmm. uh, I think full of spiritual import. I think that's fair enough. 
even though I haven't read it. I just trust you. Yeah, well, you should. Um, I would also advise you to look into some of Tolstoy's longer short stories, shorter novels. Um, uh, the Death of Ivan Ilyich is is a really good one and important for Heidegger's being in time, actually. And uh, also one called Father Sergius, Master mm-hmm. and Man, stuff like that. So uh, Tolstoy and Dostoevsky are very, very different, but... Uh, I think I think you'll find a lot to like in Tolstoy as well. Mm-hmm. And it's been a lot of years since I read it, but I do remember being both frustrated and impressed with Anna Karenina by Tolstoy. Um, it, it's it's definitely one of those novels that left me kind of drifting at sea morally uh, because I couldn't find anyone in the novel that I would say, okay, we should listen to this person. <laughs> right. Right, and I I haven't read that. I read uh, I tried twice in high school to read War and Peace. Ooh, I've, I, I've never tried that one. I got five hundred pages in both times and realized that I didn't know anything that was going on, or, and I couldn't remember so, any of the characters. So you never made it past the first third. That's right. Yeah, yeah. When I when you read five hundred pages and look up and realize that you're not halfway through it, uh, it's a it's a real wake up call. So I, yeah. I I didn't get through that one. I'm afraid. I never finished Gravity's Rainbow either. Oh gosh, I've tried that one three or four times myself. Why don't you take the next one here, Nathan? We'll do. This one's from uh, Jeremy Ridenour or Ridenour, so I'll I'll apologize again for bad pronunciation. He says, "Hey, I wanted to say that I really appreciate the various podcasts you all produce. I think they're great. I find them compelling and annoying, which is quite an accomplishment. I was wondering if you guys would consider doing an episode on either Karl Barth or Dietrich Bonhoeffer." I'd be curious to hear your theological take on their works. Thanks again for all the hard work you do. It's enriching. Also, I'd love to hear Nathan and Tripp have a theology debate one of these days. I enjoyed the interview Nathan recently had with Tripp on his book on Jesus and would appreciate a frank discussion of differences and divergences. I know that I have some reservations about process theology and radical theology, though I am broadly sympathetic to their sociopolitical aims. However, I doubt some of the theological moves they make along the way. Best, Jeremy Ridenour. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that would be a conversation where I would alienate the other half of our listeners. So that that might be something that has to happen. Nathan, um, you and Tripp used that term radical theology several times on that interview. Yes, yes. Um, which I enjoyed very much because I never get tired of people praising us at our work. <laughs> <laughs> Tripp must be our number one fan. Um, but I, that's not the same thing as radical orthodoxy. Is that right? No, they're quite different. So radical orthodoxy is a movement largely out of Cambridge University. Uh, its central early figures were people like John Milbank, Catherine Pickstock, Graham Ward. Uh, later on, when it, when it starts to take on roots in America, uh, William T. Cavanaugh, whose name I couldn't remember last episode, uh, became one of its uh, chief proponents along, along with James K.A. Smith. Radical orthodoxy is a postmodern reappropriation of St. Augustine. Uh, so what they are interested in is posing Augustine and really a, a post-enlightenment reading of Augustine. So it's not simply reading City of God, although that's awesome, uh, as an alternative to what they see as the Nietzschean nihilism of late modernism. So it is deeply philosophical. It is very technical. Uh, it is very, very much rooted in 
medieval and patristic theology read through the lens of critical theory. Is it, is it safe to say that that's a conservative postmodernism? In some ways. The, the best phrase that I've heard is, a, is the title of a book by uh, Philip Blonde, who is one of uh, John Milbank's students, called Red Tory. So in, in British politics, red and blue are opposite of what they are in American election years. Red is like socialist. Uh, blue is, you know, more capitalist, uh, classical liberal. And then the Tories are the social conservatives, if you will. So in terms of modern politics, the radical orthodox, ra- pardon me, radical orthodoxy movement stands as a sort of contradiction because they are roughly speaking socialist in their economics, but they are socialist for the sake of holding up and supporting and making possible the kind of community and family and social life that you would see advocated in someone like Richard Weaver or Edmund Burke or Russell Kirk. So it's, it's both conservative and it's socialist, uh, which is why I enjoy it so much because it, it runs across the grain of, of standard contemporary politics. Now, Radical theology, on the other hand, tends to have its roots in Nietzsche himself. Uh, Altizer, the American uh, theologian from Emory University, is one of its you know most famous proponents. So this is death of God stuff. It is indeed, and and it's expl- it's and and it, you know I, I don't know if Pete Rollins still listens to us or not. I, I had him on the show for his book, The Divine Magician. Uh, it was a, a a radical theology book. And what it was exploring is the possibility of something that you could call roughly the Christian life, but within the philosophical parameters of something like Friedrich Nietzsche and Friedrich Hegel's philosophy, therefore eschewing a lot of the ontological and the metaphysical commitments of traditional Christianity in favor of something like a radical Jesus ethics uh, it's something that I don't necessarily hold with. If you listen to my interview with Pete Rollins, uh, it is a boxing match, uh, something like what you heard about 20 minutes ago between Farmer and myself. <laughs> uh, Except this time you're the conservative one. Well, yeah, like I said, I mean, you know, if, if I actually did a radical theology show with Trip, I would alienate the other half of our listeners. So I... <laughs> um, and, and, you know, I, I'll just go ahead and say that I definitely personally identify more with radical orthodoxy uh, than I do with radical theology. Uh, you know, I mean, that's definitely a movement whose books I found a lot of help in, in a way that I just don't find help when I read radical theology. When I read radical theology, I'm reading it as someone looking in on a tradition and saying, what can I learn from these folks to make what I do stronger? When I read Radical Theology, I feel like I'm being the apprentice to Catherine Pickstock or to whoever else I'm reading and learning how to be a theological thinker. Does that, does that distinction make sense? Yes, and, and so those movements really couldn't be more different. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so, I mean, you know, I'll, I'll just go, go ahead and say, I mean, any chance I get to do... Uh, podcast with Trip Fuller I'll take because I really enjoy uh, trading punches with him. Uh, he's, like Michael said, a super fan of our show, and you know he's just a lot of fun to do a podcast with. As for Bart or Bonhoeffer, I would love that. 
We'd have to yeah, I mean, if, have to if pick a particular a, Bart book. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, and not the church dogmatics. Right. <laughs> in their totality. <laughs> right. We could, I mean, we could do a couple of his sermons or something like that. Yeah, or even a, a section of the church dogmatics I could imagine doing an episode on. Um, Bonhoeffer, I, I think the cost of discipleship would be a good one, although it would probably be more than one episode. Oh, it would have to be. It's yeah. kind of two books put together. Yeah, I, and it's been, gosh, probably uh, 15 years since I've read that. Yeah, so I don't know why we haven't done a Bart uh, episode before. I'm probably mm-hmm. afraid to have inflicted on Grubs. <laughs> That's entirely possible. Well, at any rate, did I read that or did you read that? You read it, so I'm the next one. Okay. Which is the last one? I believe so. From Jordan Poss, and it's a long one. Dear Christian Humanist, I apologize for the length of this note. (laughs) I'm going to be reaching back a ways for some of this. Last semester was just that kind of semester. Loved the episode on offices. Two novels that y'all's discussion brought to mind. There's a note that y'all, I keep getting these uh, y'all emails. (laughs) Max Berry's company is a pretty hilarious corporate satire. The novel's protagonist finds out pretty early in the plot, so not exactly a spoiler, that the corporation he's working for is actually a front for a company that sells business books. And the company itself is the Petri dish in which they experiment with their new business practices. The funniest and sadly truest scene in the novel is a meeting in which the higher-ups keep changing the objectives, testing how long the employees will put up with a meeting in which the purpose is a moving target. (laughs) That sounds hilarious. The other novel is A Confederacy of Dunces by John Kennedy Toole, in which the lovably loathsome Ignatius J. Riley is forced to get a desk job in the headquarters of Levi Pants and gets up to all kinds of shenanigans. I haven't... If you haven't read it, I imagine Michael perhaps has, as the book has a Walker-Percy connection, please do so. It might make a great episode on its own. I have not read it. I have I listened <laughs> to the first, uh, I don't know, 45 minutes on tape and then lost the files I was listening to. Um, for those of you who don't know, uh, Riley ki- – or not Riley, excuse me – Tool killed himself. And his mother, like, aggressively pursued Walker Percy to get this manuscript published. And Percy finally, like the unjust judge, read it to get her off his back and then discovered he really <laughs> loved it. And and oh, cool. my, my recollection of the little bit I heard it, is it's very, very Percyan. Hmm. Have you read that novel? No, I have not. I, I've heard good things about it, but I've never read it. It's perpetually in limbo in Hollywood. They've been trying to make ten different versions of it. Huh. Will Ferrell was supposed to play Ignatius J. Riley at one point. Huh. Thanks to David for the Chesterton episode and to Nathan for his forbearance. My <laughs> wife and I have been reading through the Father Brown stories since our daughter was born. They're enjoyable. Oddly, as big of a GKC fan as I am, I'm not crazy about his fiction as I am his nonfiction of whatever variety. So Father Brown has been a pleasant surprise. I'd be curious to hear you all discuss something like orthodoxy someday. That's possible. That's possible. Uh, I, that that's one I haven't read for about ten years, so I, I might be interested in. I might be interested in revisiting it and sparring a bit with David on it. All I've ever read from Chesterton is the Father Brown stories and the paradoxes of Mister Pond, which are very similar. Okay. Thanks to Michael for his sort of forbearance, enabling a really great Tolkien episode. A note I wanted to add on the subject of Tolkien and race. When racial regulations on published work in Germany tightened under the Nazis and Tolkien's German publisher wrote asking for an explicit acknowledgement that he was Aryan, or at least not Jewish, Tolkien responded, 
If I am to understand that you are inquiring whether I am of Jewish origin, I can only reply that I regret that I appear to have no ancestors of that gifted people. My great-great-grandfather came to England in the 18th century from Germany. The main part of my descent is therefore purely English, and I am an English subject, which should be sufficient. I have been accustomed, nonetheless, to regard my German name with pride, and continue to do so throughout the period of the late regrettable war, in which I served the English army. Army. I cannot, however, forbear to comment that if impertinent and irrelevant inquiries of this sort are to become the rule in matters of literature, then the time is not far distant when a German name will no longer be a source of pride. That's excellent. Uh, yes, yes, how wonderfully English. <laughs> Thanks also for the episode on the Seventh Seal, which I finally got around to watching as a result, haunting in a way that rivals silence, though from the opposite direction religiously. Speaking of silence, that's what prompted me to write. I first read the novel about a year ago, and I realized after listening to y'all's discussion that I should reread it as soon as possible. You know, just a just a side note here. Y'all's is a really weird word because it has two uh, apostrophes. I've never really noticed that. <laughs> it does. It, it, it has a contracted prefix and a contracted suffix. Uh, a couple of thoughts. No debating that Rodriguez is blind to many of his own faults, but I took his patronizing remarks about Japanese peasants and their first experience of warmth as referring to their systematic oppression by the samurai class, a fact of life for Japanese peasants for most of their history. Like the blow dealt to Roman social structures by Christianity, Rodriguez is noting that the peasants now have a divinely ordained humanity and purpose that was otherwise denied to them up to that point. I think this is underscored by the remoteness of the samurai in the novel, who mostly show up as threatening figures, like mafia enforcers and don't come off very well. I'm sorry, Nathan, I was waiting for you to comment on that. Oh, okay, okay, okay. I, well, and I mean, that conversation honestly was one that you and Todd were involved in more than I was, so mm-hmm. I'd, I'd rather hear your response to it. I, I, I think that, I think that's, I think that's probably right. Um, I don't remember if I said that those were, pa- those remarks in particular were patronizing. What I took to be patronizing is his, his remarks about how they live and his complaints that he can't get wine and his not being able to tell them apart. Patronizing, though, in an understandable way. I don't think we're supposed to hate him for it. I think we're supposed to see him as an outsider. Right. He's not uniquely wretched. He is understandably wretched. My other thought, says Jordan, was historical. I don't know to what extent or whether Indo even intended this. Oh, come on, Jordan. Who cares about authorial intents? <laughs> but as I read the novel, another historical tragedy lurked in the outer edges of the history, that of Nagasaki. The city figures prominently in the story, and after the handful of hidden Christians emerged in the 19th century, along with further missionary work, Nagasaki became one of the primary centers of Japanese Christianity. There were enough Catholics there to have a bishop. Much of that was, of course, eradicated in one moment in the late summer of 1945. Not something directly present in the text, but something on my mind as a military historian that lent extra weight and sadness to the story. Absolutely. That was one of the things mm-hmm. I, I did not talk about that I wish I had, that there's there's no way that a guy writing in 1960s and setting his story in Nagasaki didn't on some level have have the atom bomb in mind. Right, right. I'm glad Nathan brought up the Donatists, and Michael mentioned the role Grace plays in the sacraments, as Grace is appropriately the only hope spot in an otherwise grim novel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that final scene, like I said, in which the double confession is happening, is, I mean, one of the most powerful scenes in Christian literature that I can think of. On a related note, I'd love to hear a full-on discussion of the power and the glory, as its intrusion into y'all's discussion of silence were welcome. Oh, and I'll have to read that if we do that. Oh, it's a good book. 
Okay. Thanks again for y'all's work, and another congrats to the Grubbs family, Jordan Poss. Very good. That is our, uh, those are all the emails I think we've gotten um, since the last listener feedback episode. If you want to be included on the next one, you can email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. Our website is christianhumanist.org. We sometimes read comments from the website, but if you want, if you really want to be on the listener feedback episode, send us an email because uh, we hold on to those in a, in a safe location, unlike the comments. <laughs> uh, next week we will be doing our All, All My Sons discussion that was promised for this week. Uh, that's Arthur Miller's play. If you haven't read that, go ahead and order your book and read it. It's only 70, 80 pages. You go through it fairly quickly. There's also a movie. I don't know how close the movie stays to the script, but I would imagine yeah, it's pretty close. Yeah, I've seen the uh, the Dustin Hoffman Death of a Salesman, but I've never seen the All My Sons movie. I think there's actually two of them. Oh, are there really? Okay. I, I could be wrong about that. Alright, I'm aware of the one from the not long after the stage play, but I didn't know there was a more recent one. I think there may have been like a television version of it. Ah, okay, okay. Anyway, worth reading, won't take you long, and you'll be able to... Uh, follow our discussion next week the christian humanist podcast is a production of the christian humanist radio network Kristen philippic is our press liaison amberly copeland is our intern till next time this is michael farmer for nathan gilmore and the absent david grubb saying let your sins be strong but let your faith be stronger